I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, and then we will flip to 1 John chapter 4. I know you just sat down, but let's stand once again for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 34, verse 5, these are the words of God. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pause tonight to look to your word in order to find the guidance necessary to live our lives for your glory. We ask and pray that you would assist us as we consider this topic of love and how it is we are to use this most powerful gift. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand the truths we discover here. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it is good to be with you once again. Uh, I came here in 2018 to Zambia, uh, the real Africa. <laughs> That's how I've come to understand it. Uh, I was here in 2018. We partook of the chapel service. My pastor friend who will be arriving tomorrow from Johannesburg to meet me, uh, he was here preaching as well. And then in 2019, uh, uh, Chaplain Piria invited me to come and we uh, spent some time in this room and I also was able to preach and I'm looking forward to seeing you all again on Sunday. Uh, but it is an honor to come and be here amongst uh, students. I, I love college students. Um, I spend time on college campuses quite frequently uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, your greeting for me is much better than their greeting for me because I go to a college that is full of unbelief uh, and hatred towards the gospel. And uh, so when I show up and do some preaching and we do evangelism and stuff, usually I'm greeted with uh, bad words, <laughs> shall we say. But it's hard to believe that four years have passed since being here, stepping foot in Zambia four years ago. I, the pandemic really just shifted things around, put a lot of things on hold, unfortunately. But I am delighted to be able to spend some time with you looking at the scriptures so that we can discern how best to go about this topic of love. Uh, this is Love Week, and it's an important topic. And it's an important topic because people are confused about the topic. And the issue 
of love and the concept of love is, in my view, paramount to our own self-identity, who we are, how we look at ourselves, how we look at our families, our churches, and frankly, as we'll see on Sunday, how we look at the future and what it is God may have for you in your own life. Knowing who we are as people created in the image of God, the image and likeness of God, is supremely important. Knowing who we are as image bearers is supremely important. And because there's so much confusion today, particularly in the Western world, very much so in America, which I'll talk about in a little bit, because there's so much confusion, I find it incredibly urgent to make sure that we chart a path forward when we think about this concept of love. So my aim this evening is to look at the relationship between love in its present form, in its purest form, and the relationship between that and our emotions or our, our feelings, uh, how those two things relate, how you express love and how you feel love, receive love, those types of things. What is the connection between love as, as an idea, as a thing? What's the relationship between that and your feelings, your emotions? And uh, we need to understand the exact biblical meaning of love, especially as it pertains to the relationship between a man and a woman. Is love simply a feeling that we have when our hearts flutter, men, when we see a beautiful woman? Or, ladies, when a strong man makes us laugh? Is that what love is? In that moment, you saw somebody, you thought, boy, she's beautiful, or, or he's, he's, he's somewhat handsome. I, you know. Is that what love is? Um, does, does that feeling magically float our way, and suddenly we've got the love bug? All right? N not the coronavirus, the love bug. And more to the point, does it go away? Does that feeling just kind of go away as easy as it came does it just go away and then suddenly you're stuck in a relationship you didn't think you wanted should relationships be based on such feelings of love towards someone those are the questions i want to want to deal with and, and even still what does one do when he or she has mixed feelings in the relationship what happens after six months of courting or dating someone and well i'm having mixed feelings about this person what do I do now? Now, my goal is to develop a biblical foundation, and then we can answer some of those questions. So we should always begin with the Word of God and Scripture. So let's look at Exodus 34 again. I want you to see that in Exodus, this part of Exodus, we are reminded of God's covenant relationship with His people. We are reminded of His covenant relationship. My Bible is a translation that's a newer translation that was um, put together by the faculty of the Master's Seminary in uh, California. It's called the Legacy Standard Bible, which you can read for free online. You'll just have to search for it. Um, Legacy Standard Bible. And Yahweh is used in here. Most Bibles will say the Lord. Probably yours say the Lord, correct? The Lord, what, what that is, is God's covenant name. When it's in all capitals, it's Yahweh. It's not just God in Hebrew, generally God, Elohim. It's Yahweh, the covenant God. So in this chapter, Moses, 
and right at the beginning there in verse 1, he carves out a new set of stone tablets with the law. Remember, that contained the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, Moses had destroyed the first set because of Israel's sin. Do you remember that story? He throws them to the ground and they shatter. And that's because sin is shattering the covenant law. When you sin, you have broken the law. That's what James says. But in the morning, Moses, and Moses alone, that's verse 3, was to meet God on top of the mountain, there in verse 2. So Moses obeys, because Moses is a man of God. He obeys God, verse 4. And Yahweh, when he gets there, descends in in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses. And Yahweh calls upon his own name. And again, that's his covenant name, When the word Yahweh, the Lord in capitals is used, we're speaking of intimate language with God. He is the covenant Lord. And we get to the New Testament, find that Jesus is Yahweh. But this is the intimate relationship he has with his people. And now passing in front of Moses, which, what was that experience like? To have God, the creator, pass in front of you. Yahweh calls out. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet we also know he does not leave guilty, the, the guilty unpunished. Now, the reason I'm bringing this text to your attention here is for the simple fact that any discussion about human experience including the topic of love, any discussion about anything related to humanity must be grounded or rooted in something or someone transcendent. Okay, Whether you're talking about love or economics or, or, or paving roads and, and putting in stoplights and whatever you're talking about, it has to be rooted in something transcendent. And I'll tell you, my country has lost that. We have lost that in America. We have lost the transcendency of God because we're too busy believing ourselves to be God. But I have hope for our country. You must send missionaries to us. We need it. In other words, let me say it this way. Anytime you want to make sense of anything in this life, and I don't care what topic you choose, we have to keep in mind that the only reason we can deduce certain things, the only reason we can draw conclusions and so forth, is because God has made a covenant with his creation. You only know things because God is. Because God the transcendent has revealed himself. God is love, as we'll see in a moment. And God's love is shown and expressed in his covenant faithfulness. His his relentless pursuit of sinful creatures, despite their sin, their apathy, their general apostasy, God is always interested in drawing people to himself. God is the creator God. He is entirely self-sufficient in and of himself. He needs no one. He, He doesn't need your counsel or wisdom. He doesn't need mine. He consults with no one. Our God is in the heavens. He does what? Whatever he pleases. So God is the creator. He is absolute and creation is not. Nothing in creation can be made to be absolute. If what happens when you make something absolute in creation? You have made an idol. Yeah. Right? If you make yourself absolute, your relationships absolute, money, right? More quacha. 
more U.S. dollars. If, if that's your pursuit, you have, met, you have absolutized that thing and you have shoved God off the throne in order to put that thing or yourself on the throne. And I'm here to tell you that's a terrible way to live. So nothing in creation can be made to be absolute. God alone is absolute. God alone is personality. He thinks, He feels, He loves in that sense of responding to His creation. Now the creation itself is in no sense divine. Uh, there, in no sense is the creation divine, nor can God's creatures who are made in His image be said to ever be on the same level of God, as God. We're going to get to the love thing. Hang tight. But these are important principles you have to know. No, nothing in creation, none of us as image bearers of God, can be on the same level as God. He is transcendent. He is infinite. We are not. And we need to know that. If we are to understand love, we have to understand the difference between God and the creation. If you don't, we're going to have all sorts of problems. Okay? Otherwise, we're going to blur the lines and we're going to create our own version. No, gentlemen, no woman can bear you making them absolute. And ladies, no man can bear that either. They're not. So when it comes to the topic of love here, our, our culture, especially in America, I live about an hour west of Washington, D.C., um, there's some fun places to visit. I got to meet up with Bishop Malenga when he was in Washington recently. Um, I don't like Washington, D.C. Uh, because I think bad politics are bad. <laughs> and uh, former President Trump used to call it the swamp. And uh, I think he was right. <laughs> I can smell it from an hour away. But we have, in our culture, we have erased all sensible definitions of love because love, we are told, is love. All right? And that can be whatever you desire it to be. Flip to 1 John. I'll come back to that in a moment. 1 John, right before the book of Revelation, chapter 4, he says this twice here in verse 8 and 16. Love is mentioned 26 times in this letter. It's a shorter letter, but it's mentioned 26 times. He has a lot to say about love. Now here in verse 8, we are told, look at verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. The one who doesn't carry out this agape love does not actually know God. That's what he's saying. If you don't carry out love, you do not know God. All right? And why is that? Well, he says, because God is love. So what the Apostle John is saying is that there is a connection between knowledge of God and the consequence of carrying out love. You see the connection here in the text. There's a connection of, of knowing God and participating in the triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the mutual indwelling of love that is there in the Trinity, you knowing that, and not just knowing intellectually, but knowing it in the heart by faith, there's a connection between that knowledge and carrying out this call to love. Love is an active verb. It does something. 
And it's only ever accomplished when, when one knows and is faithful to God. So I'm here to tell you, any relationship or future relationships you get entangled in, it will not be healthy if you don't know God. It will not. And you can't actually love someone unless you know God. So love, strictly speaking, is only intelligible. It's only, uh, it's only understood as something that comes from God. First and foremost, there is only one true meaning of love, and it comes from the Creator God because this Creator God is love. Now, I want to reiterate this. When you look at the Greek language, the Koine Greek language with the New Testament was written in, there isn't an article there. Okay? It doesn't read, God is the love. There is no article in the Greek language. Okay? There is in front of God, patheos, and then you have agape, this, this love of God. God is love. So what this means is love isn't simply a quality which God possesses, as though he were partly loving, partly gracious, partly merciful. All right, that God is a, in theological terms, he's a simple being. He's not a composite being where part of him, like 5% is love, 5% is wrath, 5% is gracious. That's not God. That's a terrible version of God because you don't know what you're going to get on which day. All right, so watch how you pray, you know. But it's not that. There is no parts in God. God is a simple being. And he is who he is in and of himself. But love is that which he is by his very nature. Okay? So don't think of it as a part of God, like a piece of pizza. One, one slice is love and the other slice is grace. No, the whole thing is, is, is love. Because God is love. And this also means that whenever God expresses love, he does so by his own volition, his own willpower. It's never occasioned by outside influence of someone or something else. God doesn't wake up and say, well, I guess Zambia in their constitution, their Christian nation, I guess I have to love them. No, that's not how it works. God occasions and moves in action, in love, because of who he is. No one strong arms God into doing something. Now, verse 16, John repeats himself but he carries the idea out a little bit further. He says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. But how so? For starters, John speaks in verse 14 about the Holy Spirit. You cannot talk about love unless you have a conversation about the Holy Spirit. One of the Holy Spirit's jobs is to be the spirit of truth. That's one of his jobs. His task, and remember, the Holy Spirit is not an it, He's a he, so refer to the Holy Spirit as a he. But he is a spirit of truth. He gives truth. He dispenses truth. And he creates people in a confession of truth. That's in verse 15. So when the Holy Spirit's at work, he's doing truth stuff. Always. Now, Christianity is a covenantal religion. Indeed, it's the only covenantal religion. And as such... The Holy Spirit creates faith in the hearts of God's people. And when that happens, the truth of God is implanted. When the Holy Spirit changes your heart, He puts truth there like a seed. He puts truth there. 
But we also have a spirit of love. When truth is conceived in the heart, love is conceived in the heart. When the Holy Spirit regenerates you and makes you new, a new, a new person, a new creation, Paul says, guess what? Truth has conceived, but so has love. Those things are put there by the Holy Spirit. And that's why these things must be practiced. For example, you must not bear false witness because God is not a liar. It's one of the Ten Commandments, correct? The Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Why? Because God doesn't like liars? No, because God's not a liar. God hates lies. He cannot lie. And He doesn't want people bearing false witness about the truth of God. And the Spirit inside of you does not tell lies either. So you have the truth in you when you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you have love in you when you have the Holy Spirit in you. So John makes a very simple statement here at the latter half of verse 16. He says it again, God is love. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is perhaps, I think, if not the greatest statement in Scripture, it's up there in the top three. But in terms of the greatest statement of Scripture on the relationship between God and love. Because you think of John 3.16, right? For God so loved, right? But here, he's getting back to the root of it. God is love. What an amazing statement. God is love. Islam does not teach that. False religions cannot teach that. They don't in their own theologies. See, if a man or a woman wants to know the love of God, he or she must know Christ. If you want to know the love of God, speaking of John 3.16, you must know Christ. You must know Him. And that's who the Holy Spirit invites you to. Who does the Holy Spirit take you to? Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't take you to a mirror and say, hey, look how good you look today. Boy, you are a smart person. You have nice clothes. I think I'll do a work in you. No, that's the external. The Holy Spirit drags you to the mirror of God's law and says, you don't meet up to this standard, but Christ does. That's who you should look like. Now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? <laughs> he says the one who abides in God does so because God abides in him. If you're going to abide and obey God, abide in God and obey God, then you must know that he abides in you. And that is a penetrating and striking analysis here. Love for God is always a correlation to the truth of God. Okay, you cannot. Uh, let me say that again. Love for God is always a correlation. It is always related to the truth of God. You cannot divorce love from truth, and neither can those things be divorced from God. God is always first here, friends. Always. And any expression of love that we might show can only come from a people who know God who abide in God and who have His Holy Spirit. So I ask this question a lot after we look at the, dig into the Scriptures. What do I, I ask my church? How shall we then live? We've looked at the Bible. How do we live now? That's the question we're going to look at now. John tells us elsewhere that God is Spirit. God is Spirit. That's John 
the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit. Remember, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. God is spirit, meaning he's distinct from man. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light. All these images come from John. He's brilliant. He was a wonderful writer. Uh, God is light, meaning there's no darkness in him. And he illuminates all. Uh, the, the famous writer C.S. Lewis talks about how you come to know truth and how you see truth, and it's because the sun gives light to everything. That is God. God is light. He gives light to everything. We also know in Hebrews 12, 29, that God is a consuming what? Fire. He is a consuming fire, which means no one escapes his judgment. So what we find is that there are concepts that we discover as image bearers living in God's world that all stem from God. You guys are talking about love this week. Where else are we going to start with the fact that God is love? Where else could you possibly go? He's the source of all things. He's the fountain from which everything springs. He's the ground of all movement. And he's the foundation of truth and discovery. And what John wants us to know is that when we say God is love, we are not saying love is God. Do you know the difference? God is love. We are not saying love is God. This is what's called pantheism at its root. It's a collapsing of the distinctions between God and creation. Remember we started with that? If you collapse that distinction, Romans chapter 1, what do you have? Sin running loose. Sin running loose. And that is pantheism. So we don't say love is God. Love does not give a definition for God. Rather, God is the one who defines what love truly is. Now this is the logic of the passage, okay? Number one, God is love. <laughs> Number two, those who have been born of God and know God are God's children as a result of that knowledge, correct? So God is love, and if you're a child of God, it's because you know God. And when you know God, you're a child of God. The third thing John says here is that God's children have, have God's nature, meaning he's given us the Holy Spirit, and now we participate in this relationship with God. And number four, God's children will therefore love. That's the logic here. We start with God. God is love. Second, when you know God, you become his child. Okay? And then only from there do you participate in the love that stems from God. And then, number four, you get to spill out into the world to love others, to love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the source of all love is God. The source of all love is God. It's a very simple concept. And when we carry out the command to love, we love like God loves. How should I love my future spouse? Right? How should I show love in this relationship? Well, what does God do? That's your first question. How does God show love? He gives of himself. He serves. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you're going to be last. How did he, what did he do? He washed Peter's feet. What did Peter say? Well, wash my whole body. You're missing the point, Peter. So that's how you carry it out. 
And, and this is evidence that we're doing it the way God desires if the love that we are expressing is in terms of God's love. Now, in my country, here we go. In my country, we have another sexual revolution taking place. Uh, there was one in the 1960s, and um, a lot of damage was done, but a lot of what we're experiencing in my country right now is a result of that 50, 60, 70 years after the fact. And I, it's actually, a, I call it a devolution, because <laughs> we're not ascending upwards. We're actually descending downward to hell. And this is especially palpable during the month of June, which is called in our country Pride Month. And um, boy, I, I'm personally offended by that because my birthday's in June. <laughs> my anniversary, 17 years with my wife, is in June. And Father's Day is in June. They're trying to take that from me. I'm not happy. Homosexuality and sodomy are celebrated in our country as virtues that must be accepted. Transgenderism, while coming from a very small minority, is honored and celebrated in Hollywood and our media outlets. 1%. Yeah, one, like 1% 1 or less of people would be classified in that. But you would think by watching American news channels that everyone was gay and everyone was of the opposite gender. And I mean that somewhat jokingly, but it's true. You would think that everyone is partaking of homosexuality. Just if you watch the news outlets, it's incredible the support that less than 1% of the population is getting from, you, have you seen pictures of the White House lit up with rainbow colors? And we Christians respond by saying, well, I appreciate that they're celebrating Noah's covenant <laughs> because he probably should flood America right now. <laughs> But what we are told all of the time, and I'm told this when I go to colleges for evangelism, when we go out and we engage the culture, because that's where we're at right now. Christianity is taking a back seat, but we're trying to get back control of the steering wheel again. But what we do is we go out and we evangelize and we try to engage people, and they will tell us all the time, love is love. I mean, they put it on signs and t-shirts and I almost wore my other shirt tonight. I probably should have now that I think of it. It's uh, rainbow colors, and it says Proverbs 16, 18. Do you know what that means? Pride goes before destruction. Uh, they don't like that shirt, but it's a means for the gospel. But love is love. But does that make any sense whatsoever to you? Think about it. That's like saying green is green. Blue is blue. How does that actually define anything? You know, I asked my wife... I told her this morning I went to pick and pay. I like pick and pay. It's close to where I'm staying. But, it, well, what is that? If I told her, well, pick and pay is pick and pay. Hungry lion is hungry lion. Like, <laughs> it's, how does that actually define anything? You can't explain it that way. And nothing ever works that way. How, what is love? It's love, man. It's love, don't you know, dude? Like, that's the stuff that I hear. Now, before we get into some practical things, I want to make sure we're all going in the same direction here. Love must be defined, but it must be defined by something other than itself, other than its own name. Love is not self-referential. 
That's why I said you need the transcendency of God. Love is not self-referential. And the people who say that have made love God. According to Romans 13, verse 8, and you can check this out later if you like, Romans 13, 8 and Romans 13, 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that love is law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Have you ever seen that before and noticed that? That's an interesting phrase. Love is the fulfillment of the law. According to 1 John 2, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God has been perfected or matured. Now, isn't that interesting? Far from love being love, John says, if you keep his word, love is in you. 1 John 5, verse 3 is even more to the point. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. What in the world? Did not the Lord Jesus say as much? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. You see, love is not love. For this does not make any sense whatsoever. Love is law. And that law stems from the God who made it. Love can only be expressed because God is love. Love can only be expressed when done on His terms and conditions. Love, and I'll give you a quick example here, okay? Because, again, part of our sexual devolution in America is, well, just live together before you get married. It's fine. And then they want to call that love. Well, has, has God told you to do this? No. What has God said to do? Do not have any sexual relations outside marriage. Period. That's love. Why? Because that's a law. It's fixed. So love can only be actualized and particularized when we know the truth of God. And this is why the greatest two commandments were summarized by our Lord. What are they? Love God. Love neighbor. Correct? Love neighbor as yourself. And you cannot love your neighbor, according to John, without knowing the love of God in Christ. You cannot love that man you're in a relationship with, or that woman you're in a relationship with, ruling out homosexuality. You cannot be in that relationship if you do not know the love of God in Christ. That's why Paul tells us you don't marry unbelievers. You cannot be unequally yoked. You can't. That's like pairing a dog with an ox and trying to plow a field. It doesn't work. You have to be equally yoked. So, so you, you, if you remember, uh, this was Thomas Aquinas' definition of love. You may have heard it before, but long before love can be the willing of the good of the other, that's Aquinas. He defined it as when you will the good of, of the other, when I want what's best for you, and I'm willing to show that with time, money, attention, long before it can be that willing of the good of the other, love must be understood not primarily as a feeling that comes and goes. And please hear me on this. You cannot define it as a feeling that comes and goes. What, what I would say is emotional infatuation, because we've all been there. That's why Paul told Timothy to flee your youthful lusts. 
because I've been married 17 years and I can tell you things change. But when it's grounded in Christ, it changes for the better. It's like, uh, you know, old aged wine apparently tastes better than the young stuff. <laughs> Same type of thing. But long before that can be any of that, it must be understood as being the very nature of God himself. Long before love is you willing the good of the other. Long before love is an emotional experience. Long before any of that, we have to root it in God. God is love. God is Trinitarian. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love one another in perfect community, mind you, because that's who God is. And think about it for a second. For the, for the Christian man or woman who knows the love of God because the Holy Spirit has implanted that love in the heart, what else what is, think of it this way, what is the greatest expression of it in terms of what we do to aid someone else? Okay, we've made it clear God is love. That's where love is defined. But what is the greatest expression of that? Jesus showed us and he told us. He showed us by dying in our place for our sins. That is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? He showed it to you. He showed you what love is. He gave you his son. So he showed it. But he also told us, he said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Love, then, is not a feeling, which admittedly can come and go. Love is action, which comes from the action of God in Christ. If you think that love is to be primarily expressed in terms of sexual categories, then your relationships will be ungodly, and you will not glorify God with your body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price. You are not your own. So glorify God with your body. So what you do with your body parts matters. Now there are two options here. One, either God is in charge of sex, God's in charge of love, God's in charge of marriage, God's in charge of these relational uh, dynamics, or two, sex is God. Those are the only two options. Those are the two categories, and depending on your view of emotions, your view of God, and your view of the purpose of relationships like marriage, this will determine how you view the rest of your life. If you think sex is God, you will ruin your life. You will ruin your, your, your marriage, your relationships, you'll, it'll be gone. And I'm not saying here that emotions are bad. I actually wrote a book called the Reconstructing the Heart. It's on emotions, and I, I spend a lot of time uh, on that, and I'd be happy to send a free PDF to you. I just got to make sure we get connected. But the emotions are not bad. The foundation of Christianity and its, its, its uh, expression in the world is through men and through women, through the heart, right? That's how God relates to us. That's the center of man. That's the inner man. Uh, that's, uh, remember Proverbs 4 says, the issues of life spring forth from the heart. The heart is what makes you you. In Proverbs 4 there, the Hebrew word is lev, and its main meaning has to do with the center, the locus of a person's entire being. Your desires, your emotions, your willpower, your thinking, all of that comes from the heart. In the Western world, we think, 
we tend to think that the heart is just where emotional, emotional stuff comes from. The heart is just the emotional branch of the soul. And the brain is thinking, right? We go, the brain, what we think is up here, what we feel is here. And that's what we've done in the Western world is we've said that that's how it should be. But not in the Hebraic understanding. The ancient Jews understood that the heart is the source from which everything flows. The heart encompasses everything about you. What you say out of your mouth, how you act, the things you do, you know what that is? That's your heart on display. Right? Every time your mouth speaks, your heart is right there open for everybody to see. Which is all to say that the heart is the touch point for God's dealings with men. What is it the Holy Spirit regenerates in God's people? The brain? No, the heart. How is love to be demonstrated then? That is, where does our sense of volition and willpower come from? The heart. In order for you to have a healthy relationship with someone, someone you could marry, someone you could have a family with, you have to understand the heart. Emotions are, are good, but when emotions and passions turn into sexual lusts and covetousness, they are bad. And since it comes, all those things come from the heart, it's important to know that the condition of the heart is what will give you a solid relationship with someone else. Now, as we wrap up, let me give you some practical advice here. Okay? Love is not merely a feeling that comes and goes. I think I made that obvious. It's not merely a feeling that comes and goes. And this may be something, if you're taking notes, you'll want to write down. But love is the intentional practice of God-centered righteousness. Love is the intentional practice. Love is the intentional practice of God-centered righteousness. Everybody got it? If you want to have true love with another of the opposite sex, mind you, then you're going to have to know what, what it is God expects from you. You're going to have to know. And I'm going to talk more about that on Sunday. But for now, just know that God expects you to be mature and being able to discern between good and evil. Love is a verb, and it stems from the heart. And if your intentions are unrighteous, that's why, gentlemen, you need to be a gentleman and to speak truth and what it is you hope to achieve out of this relationship with this woman. She shouldn't have to go guessing what you're thinking. All right? You, you hear me? You, she shouldn't have to guess. What's he thinking? What is he up to? No, nah, you, you, yeah. you, your intentions need to be on the table. Clear. Thank you. Your relationships, if you don't do that, they will falter. She will always wonder what you're up to, and then she will start to second guess. And you will have ruined the relationship, not her. <laughs> That's what we call an amen from the lady. <laughs> but what happens if I don't feel the same way I once did? Where was all that excitement? 
Well, first, if the excitement was built on lust and you haven't matured enough to know that, then the relationship isn't going anywhere. You have wasted both of your, your time. If the excitement is because of the newness of it all, right? The newness of it all, the pursuit of someone, it's thrilling in and of itself. You get to plan a nice romantic date. But if you think that that's what excitement is, then you have not yet matured. Because these ladies need a mature man. After 17 years of marriage, I know. I've figured it out. <laughs> Took me a while, but I got it. I would say that if anyone thinks that relationship must be about the excitement, however you define it, then you really don't know the first thing about love. Love, again, comes from God because God is love. And if your relationship, uh, if you're, think of your relationship with God. If your relationship with God lacks excitement, I would first ask you what you mean by that. But then I would ask, well, what are you doing to cultivate your relationship with God? Right? I mean, farming can be exciting. But the seed, when it's put into the ground, doesn't produce a crop overnight. It has to be carefully cultivated, right? The weeds have to be pulled. It has to have water. It has to have sun. In order to grow, it needs those things. And the same thing is for relationships. You have to cultivate your love. It has to be cultivated. Men have... We, we, I'm not just trying to pick on the guys, but you can take it. You have to communicate. You have to learn how to love, how to express love in godly categories not with your own agenda. You have to cultivate it. You have to learn how best to serve the other person to the glory of God. And if you say, if you stand up in a church and you say, I do, that's what you say in marriage, correct? You say, I do. If you say that to someone in marriage, you are promising in a covenant, no less, a covenant that God takes very, very seriously. You break covenant, what does he do? He opens the ground and you fall in. We've seen that before. You're promising in covenant to do whatever it takes to sacrifice yourself for the sake of the other. My wife, I mentioned, we've been married 17 years, and let me tell you, there were plenty of exciting times. The thrill of well, her and I were friends for a couple of years, just genuine friends enjoyed spending time playing, you know, playing tennis, playing other sports, and and, and texting each other and talking and um, early on I was I was more interested in her than she was in me I don't know she might hear this I'm recording but but there were difficult times too though I have three children 15 11 10 boy girl boy okay when we had two kids under the age of two we had our challenges Staying up all night, try to make sure the baby's fed and stops crying after like six days in a row. I look like I did Tuesday, or uh, yeah, Tuesday when Bishop picked me up from the airport. I was tired. That jet lag is really bad. But there are difficult times. But in this case, though, the love of God in Christ, which has been planted in my heart and the heart of my wife, is what gets you through the challenging times. Marriage doesn't exist to make you happy. Do you know that? It doesn't exist to make you happy. Relationships don't exist to make you happy. It exists to show the world what Christ and the church looks like. Ephesians 5. It exists as a covenant 
to glorify God through the procreation, having children, right? And, and the purposes of love and devotion to one covenant person. And there is more to love than feelings. We are dealing with self-sacrifice, commitment, fortitude, self-control, maturation, holiness. It's more than feelings. It's more than feelings. It's self-sacrifice. It is commitment. It's fortitude. Being able to withstand the challenging times. Self-control. That may be very well what these ladies want most out of a man. As a man with self-control. Goes hand in hand with maturation as well. But lastly, holiness. Holiness. A marriage does not exist for fun and excitement. It exists for the purposes of God. Which means that when you're looking for a husband or looking for a wife, you simply must be looking for someone who loves the Lord more than he or she loves you. That's what I say to every, every premarital counseling I do. You, ladies, you want a man who loves God more than he loves you. And the same thing is true, too. You need your spouse, you need that person to love God more than he loves you. And I'll tell you why. Because sin will inevitably show up at your doorstep and how you deal with that is what's going to determine whether or not you have a good marriage. A husband's ultimate job is the same as his wife's, to help each other become more holy because of the marriage covenant. That's your job. And if you build your relationship on the sinking sands of feelings and emotionalism and sexual lusts, then you can expect your home to falter and crumble when the winds and the rain visit your family. All relationships are to be built on the Word of God, the truth of God's Holy Spirit granted love, and the Bible calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross. You want a healthy version of love? There it is, self-denial, self-sacrifice. Learn to love the way that Jesus loves. Amen? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would deepen the relationships that are already here and prepare those which are to come. I'm thankful for my friends here at the university. I pray your blessing upon them as they sort through these things uh, and, and, and joining up back here at the school again for another year and, and for all the things you're doing in their lives. I pray your blessing now. Give them holiness and maturation. Give them peace of mind and give them hearts that are set aflame by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.